Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey guys, it's Reed. Before we get started, now is the time to get involved. We're almost to the end of the first quarter of 2023. We got nine months to build out the field army for the pro-democracy movement to make sure it's ready to fight in 2024. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up today. Sign up to do your part in the fight for our future. Jointheunion.us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, covering Trump and the Justice Department. He also regularly appears as a political analyst for MSNBC, Peacock, and a variety of other outlets. Today, he's coming to us from New York City. Hugo, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so a week ago, Trump put out a truth social thing saying, or maybe it was Monday of last week, saying that he would be arrested on Tuesday by the Manhattan District Attorney, or the police, or whatever the case might be. And even after almost eight years, Hugo, we all fell for it. He didn't have any evidence of it. Alvin Bragg's office didn't say anything official. Here we are now a week later, and he did it to us again. And I can tell you, like, I should know better. I've been doing this for a long time, Hugo, but the guy has a mystical power to get everybody to focus on him exactly when he wants them to. The way in which Trump took over the news cycle last week and already this week is extraordinary. So I think the post came on Saturday. By Saturday afternoon, most reporters on the Trump beat already knew that that was based on nothing. And the news cycle was still what it was. And I think we all, like, actually, a lot of us reported it that way, saying, hey, look, you know, Trump saw the report on NBC on, I think it was Friday, that said law enforcement was gearing up to figure out security in case of an indictment. And Trump really lost his stuff and just went off. And everyone did fall for it. And I can't tell if it's because, like, the networks want this kind of coverage. I don't know if the networks think their audience want this kind of coverage. I don't know if it's because reporters are, like, high on this stuff. But it is quite extraordinary and to see it unfold in real time. And then now looking back on it a week later and seeing how we all got totally duped by Trump is kind of embarrassing. I feel the same way. I mean, I guess that's the question is, you know, there's the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, fool me for eight years, I guess really shame on us. Look, I think Trump obviously knows what people want to see. You know, he knows like the left will go crazy if he said stuff like, oh, I want to be handcuffed, you know, I want to, oh, my mugshot taken because it will fuel this whole speculation as to whether he's being serious. If he's being serious, oh my God, are we going to finally get our Trump in orange overalls moment that the left has been desperately wanting for so long? And at the same time, it galvanizes the right because 
Fox News can drive their outrage cycle and be like, you know, they're going after Trump for paying hush money. You know, most Americans would probably empathize with this. I don't really understand how that works, but, you know, he might be seen as like a dude. And so, you know, both sides get what they want. And ultimately, the winner is Trump because he's in the news for the entire week. Nothing else can get through. He actually did do pretty well fundraising. I think Fox reported it was 1.5 million. It was actually higher than that from what we understand. And this whole indictment frenzy has driven his fundraising to kind of new levels that he was struggling to match since his campaign launch in November. So, you know, he knows how to do this. And I think it was pretty effective. I want to talk about the money for a second, because you mentioned that after his, let's be clear, like really, you know, vanilla ice cream launch, you know, last fall, you know, right after the election, somebody said he raised something like $10 million between that speech and the end of the year. And that's not that much money. But this is why context in this is important, Hugo, which is no one else in the Republican field, whether they're in or out now, is going to raise $10 million in six weeks. No one else is going to raise a couple three million bucks in small dollar donations over the course of a week after an announcement like this. This is one thing uh, trying to communicate to our viewers, trying to communicate to our listeners, which is he is not a politician. He is the leader of a movement. And to your point, when he does stuff like this, this is the, I'm going to call it, you don't have to, I'm going to call it his evil genius, is he's giving everybody what they want. He's giving the left something to scream about. He's given the right the reason to fight. And he's given you guys, the referees, clickbait. Whether or not that's what you're going for, that's what it ends up being. I think that's right. You know, when you talk to Trump advisors kind of around him, their response is, oh, it's so great. It's so great. And, you know, that would not be the case for any other campaign. You know, their candidate, you know, about to be indicted criminally. I mean, normally that is the death knell, right? And it is true that Trump has this unique ability to spin what would otherwise be terrible news and turn it into some sort of galvanizing force for not only his supporters, but also his detractors. And, you know, Trump might not be raising money at the levels he was in, say, 2020. But you are right that he is outraising everyone else. He's outraising Haley and DeSantis as well, because DeSantis is actually struggling to bring money in from what we understand. And, you know, they will dispute this, but from kind of our sources around Tallahassee, they do not have the most lavish cash operation. You know, Trump's paying his advisors six figures. DeSantis is not. Right. So we'll, we'll get to DeSantis in a second, but I want to just talk about the ability to drive everybody to focus on him and the money. And Trump's ability to get the world to focus on him abrogates the need for him to raise as much money as he used to, because he's going to get all the free attention. Remember, go back to 2015, 2016, in the aftermath of that campaign, right? I think it was something like, you know, in the primary period anyway, and you, you might remember this better than I do, is that it was like 50 seconds of every minute of primary coverage in 2015, 2016 went to Trump. And the balance of it went to everybody else, including Hillary Clinton, right? And so this ability of him to basically create an eclipse on the rest of the political world still hasn't changed that much. I think the question now is, though, to your point, there was, I think, uh, an NPR survey out which said, I think, a couple of things. One is that independents, at least in this moment, Hugo, seem to be really over Trump. Not surprising. 
but 75% of Republicans still say they support Trump. Well, that's not a great number for him, actually. If you want to secure a nomination and certainly secure a reelection, 75 means you get crushed. 95 means you're competitive. And so I'm just, I'm curious as to how you see this as not support amongst the faithful because they're zealots. They'll go wherever he goes, as we've seen. But how do you see this with sort of, you know, the otherwise normal American who like nearly a decade into this is sort of like, really, we're doing this again? I think two points. I think so first of all, with respect to the money, Trump doesn't have to really raise money because, you know, what do most candidates pay for? They pay for advertising. Trump doesn't need the advertising. He gets it for free because, you know, reporters cover him with like this zeal that no other candidate can command. And so Trump's spending is directed elsewhere. And I think that's why his advisors, you know, in some sense, don't really kind of care like about the fundraising that someone else might. So I think that's the first thing. He gets it for free. With respect to the audience, I think it is true that independents are starting to get sick of the constant haranguing that Trump voiced upon the country because it is really exhausting. Like objectively, it's tiring. Like every time you listen to him, it's like it is grievance based. Like even on Hannity yesterday, when he gave that interview, it was all about him and same at the rally. So I don't know what the audience is in this country for politics about him. Politics about other people's grievances, sure. But his own problems, I don't know how many people want to listen to that and how many people feel like that is the same issue they are. They are because, you know, Trump likes to say, oh, if they indict me, they can indict you. But then, you know, how many other people are under criminal investigation for whether it's January 6th or retaining documents or paying hush money, right? It's like these are not commonplace issues for people in the way that when he was running in 2016, I felt like people could gravitate towards him. People could understand the MAGA movement. People could understand where Bannon was going you know, when he talked about, you know, the forgotten men and women of America. Well, I think also just going back to 16 for a second too. remember that for Trump, the ultimate and maybe the only person he could have run against and won against in 2016 was Hillary Clinton, because in her own way, she was mythological for Republicans, which was there were a lot of Republicans. And I think we saw this in the end and it was close. Don't get me wrong, was Trump is a bore. I don't really like him. But I can never vote for Hillary Clinton. I just, I've, you know, she, because for 25 years, I haven't liked her. Now I think we're in a little bit different place because, you know, Joe Biden, you'd say whatever you want about him. But the truth is, is like, if you look at his job approval ratings, right, they're probably not as high as the White House would want, but they're never going to be. But my guess is if you looked at his personal approval ratings, they're probably a lot higher or at least somewhat higher, which is he's not so imminently hateable by half the country. And you can tell that that's what Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to Clintonize him, for lack of a better way to put it. And frankly, I think it's hard because he's not, right? He doesn't have the Bill Clinton, the Hillary Clinton, all this stuff, right? Because they were so central to our politics for so long. But also the Republicans trying to do this aren't very good at it either. And they try to do the same thing in 2020, right? Like the problem with Biden is you can't hate him in the way that you might be able to dislike Clinton because he comes across as like your granddad, right? He's like, he has these compelling stories about how he, he lost like Bo. You know, he's like the giver of eulogies. He seems like a really nice guy who, you know, you could kind of go to for emotional support. And I think people fundamentally have a problem hating someone like that. And so it's difficult to turn him in, into a villain. 
which is why I think you're seeing a bit of a shift actually in this cycle where Trump and his campaign is trying to characterize him less as a villain and more as like an incompetent guy. Right, a doddering old man, yeah. Now, let's spend a little time on Trump's team. In 2016, right, the whole thing was sort of a ramshackle operation, right? It was an airplane and this collection of weirdos that would cycle in and cycle out based on Trump's mood. In 2020, obviously, it was, you know, a quote unquote professional operation, but it still really wasn't because, again, Trump is the alpha and the omega of everything. So it doesn't really matter. Now, you know, his team is comprised of people like Susie Wiles, who I know and I've known her husband for many years, longtime Republican Florida operative, knows exactly what to do from an operations, you know, the construction of a campaign. Then you've got a guy named Chris Lasavita, who's sort of the senior strategist guy. I was in New York last week speaking to a group of people. And Hugo, I said, does anybody remember John Kerry being swift boated in the summer of 2004? Boos, hisses. I'm like, well, congratulations. The guy that did that is now Trump's number one guy. And they're like, ah! right? These are people who know what they're doing. Now, I will say this, is they are better than I think the people he's had in the past, but they're still contending with the fact that ultimately Trump wants to be in charge and he, he will only stay caged or at least leashed for so long. It's a really interesting question because the team is very sophisticated. And I have been trying to kind of report this for the last four months. This team is probably the most sophisticated team that Trump has ever had. Susie and Chris, as you say, they're like veteran operators. They know exactly what they're doing. The comm shop is very sophisticated. You know, they have like the, some of the hangers on from 2020 and 2016, but you know, they're just survivors and they know how to work the game. They're political operatives who know where they fit into the campaign and where they can contribute. There has been little to no backstabbing with this circle of advisors, which as, as you know, is very rare, right? The White House was a den of infighting. This team gets on so cohesively that they actually get stuff done. And the way they have disassociated Trump from the campaign kind of working so that they can just do their thing and get on with it is to tell Trump, you know, we're just going to do the behind the scenes work. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy. You're not missing out on anything. And Trump seems to have, at least for now, bought into that which has allowed Susie and Chris and Stephen Chung and Boris and these guys to effectively figure out their ground operation. You know, what have they been doing in the last three months? They've been going to early states and setting up early state teams. They found like district directors. They're paying them a lot of money for a campaign, like coming up to almost $200,000 for some of these senior guys, if not more. They're very lavish. They're treating everyone as well as you'd be expected, if not better. And this is why I think this campaign is more potent than I think the previous two campaigns. And a lot of the wish casting in DC saying, oh, you know, it's slow, it's low energy, nothing's been happening. Well, that's because it's all been happening below the surface. And if you actually look at what they're doing, they've been working with amazing efficiency. And I don't think that should go unnoticed. Right. Because again, they're people that know what they're doing. They have chosen, of course, from my perspective, right, to make the complete deal with Mephistopheles, right? Whatever lines they all had in their lives, they've totally erased because they also know who and what they're working for, right? I mean, this, it's no secret, but I think they're right. And that's why, you know, do I believe that Trump is the most beatable Republican 2024? I mean, aside from some of the other people who are never going to be the nominee, 
Probably. Do I also believe he's the most dangerous? Of course. Absolutely. I think he is. So let's talk about that. So you mentioned Ron DeSantis. I've done what, three or four of these things. I spent a lot of time in Iowa, a lot of time in South Carolina, a lot of time in these early states. And, you know, you see some of the stories coming out about the DeSantis campaign or the DeSantis proto campaign, whatever you're going to call it, Hugo. And they brought in Jeff Rowe to work on the super PAC side. And until there's an official campaign, I guess Rowe can interact with DeSantis as much as he wants. But they don't appear to be ready for prime time. Now, this is not unusual for a, a first time campaign, which is typically the first crew in is also the first crew out because it's a rare exception that anybody knows enough, especially when they've never done it before. You know, there's a million different things you got to do every day and they got to get done every day. And then you've also got to react to, you know, a fire breathing monster trying to light you on fire every day. Yeah, look. I think the first thing to note with the DeSantis campaign is Trump has had a six month head start on them. You know, from what we understand, you know, they have started to put together their senior team now. They're looking at having a team of about 40 to 50 people at the moment. And, you know, Trump's already been doing this since before the launch, right? It's, it's really started in like July, August. That's when we started hearing about these Trump aides starting to slot into position, decline other jobs, you know, figure out if they want to work for the super PAC or if they want to work for the campaign. You know, DeSantis is doing that now. And, you know, there's still a long runway to go. But there is the disadvantage that Trump knows exactly what he's doing, and has been doing it for a long time, and already has a head start on him. So I think that's the first point. I think the second point is DeSantis is putting together a team that looks also sophisticated. You know, he's bringing in people from Senate campaigns, he's bringing in people from Win Red. He's got some people from the governor's mansion, but really it looks like to be a relatively new team. And he's also, you know, pulling some former Trump guys onto the senior staff. So it's not all worked out yet, which is why I'm, I'm not kind of mentioning names because, you know, who knows how, how it all shape up. But at the moment, it is still very much a work in progress campaign. They don't have a comm shop. They don't really have a policy shop ready to go. And you saw this on display most recently when DeSantis threw a rock at Trump and said, you know, I don't know what, what happens when you, you pay hush money to a porn star. And then Trump just responded with like the deluge of crap that got poured on him. And when that happened, I think a few of DeSantis senior staff took a moment and thought, you know, we're getting killed in the comms game. And this has actually been an area for concern for them. I mean, this is the other part too. And I think it's important that we make this distinction. Whereas Trump is not really a politician, but he plays one on TV. Like he wasn't a businessman, but he played one on TV. He's the leader of a movement. DeSantis is a politician. He's a conventional politician. And what you just described is a conventional campaign. And your point about when DeSantis sort of took this half-hearted shot at Trump, the reaction, this is what most folks don't understand is like, when you're in this early campaign stage, you know, with multiple campaigns or whatever, there's oppo drops you know, where you're saying bad things about each other and the rapid response guys are working guys like you, right? Making sure everybody knows what's going on. But the difference with Trump is that if you do it to him, he attacks you personally and relentlessly. And once they have a communications person, Hugo, he will attack them personally by name. I mean, maybe it's because we've been doing it so long now, Hugo, like we just understand it's part of the, like he attacks us all the time, <laughs> right? Like it's just part of the deal. Like, and we understand what comes with it. But for a lot of these people, I mean, again, the experience of a presidential campaign notwithstanding, they've never faced anything like this before. Because here's the other part, too. 
even in the old game. And if you took Trump out of it, right, and it was DeSantis and Haley and Pompeo and Pence and everybody else, there would be rules, unwritten rules about what you did and didn't do, what you did and didn't say. That's gone. That's out the window because Trump will say anything and he doesn't care if it's true or not. And then you, you as the recipient of said attack, have to prove it's not true, whether or not it's true or not. And if it's not true, how do you prove the negative? <laughs> right. And, you know, if, if Trump's coming after you and says, oh, you know, maybe how many affairs did DeSantis have? And maybe with a man, like it is impossible to kind of retaliate in a way that is as aggressive as you've been attacked. You basically have to come up with an insult that's even worse than what Trump has thrown at you. And I don't think DeSantis and his team have quite kind of internalized this yet or kind of like figured out a response to it. I don't think anyone has, by the way. I feel like Trump is unique in his ability to come up with insults and be really vicious in the way that he does it. And I think, you know, this is a holdover from when he was, you know, a real estate guy in New York where... I mean, and it's not just real estate, guys. I mean, I'm in New York now. You know, I used to live here before when I was a kid. And, you know, we had a superintendent in the building who was, you know, this Greek dude who, you know, you needed to grease the palms off to do anything. You want to, you want like an in-unit washer dryer. I mean, you have to deal with his shit. And this is just New York real estate. And if you're not part of that and you don't understand how it works, I think it's very, very difficult to respond. And I think Trump is the epitome of that. No. And again, it goes back to the whole idea of you said, that, you know, the DeSantis campaign might have 40 or 50 people. Why? Why do you have 40 or 50 people? Because to your point, they're not raising money into a federal account yet, you know, with a limit and everything else. But if he decides to run sometime in the next six to eight weeks, they will have to open that bank account and initial money will flood in. It always does. But once that cash register starts going, Hugo, it never stops until it runs out of money. And hiring 50 people Believe me, as someone who has made this mistake personally, is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because every one of those people, let's say you're paying them $60,000 a year. So it's about $5,000 a month. You got to pay taxes on them. Then you add 25% for health insurance, their phone, their computer, everything else. And then you got one more human being you've got to deal with. And this is just a management problem, but it becomes a financial problem too, which is a presidential comm shop is basically an in-house PR firm. Is the person you've chosen to run that not only A, an incredibly professional communicator in their own right, can they also manage a staff of 15 or 20 people? And they, can they manage the candidate? Or in the case of DeSantis, can they manage the candidate's spouse who appears to be sort of the wannabe Lady Macbeth of the whole operation? All right, we've only got a couple of minutes left with you, Hugo. So let's talk about this. So what is something that you're writing about now that you're taking a look at that our listeners and our viewers should be focused on? So there is a lot of stuff still in the, in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation, right? Like, you know, there's been a couple of recent developments which have not been great for Trump. Basically, his principal lawyer at the time of the May subpoena when DOJ was trying to get all the documents back, he obviously had to go testify before the federal grand jury in Washington, hearing evidence in that case last week, Friday. And you also had to turn over all of his notes to DOJ. And that is not where you want to be if you're a defendant in a criminal investigation, a target in the criminal investigation. I mean, your lawyer getting the attorney-client privilege pierced by the chief judge and then having to testify under the crime fraud exception is not a great sign. You know, that being said, it's unclear to what extent Trump's personal involvement and at least the obstruction element of this is. And even if there was some involvement, it's a question of, well, are his lawyers 
going to throw him under the bus, right? Are we going to get an Alan Weisselberg or are we going to get a rat? And I think we're coming up to a very crucial juncture in this investigation because depending on how things go, maybe in the next few weeks, maybe next few months, I think it could dramatically change the outcome of the investigation. I think the one thing the DOJ is probably struggling with, and I think we know is worth keeping an eye out for, is they've subpoenaed a lot of people in Trump's inner circle and people who work at Mar-a-Lago, right? They've subpoenaed the cooks, they've subpoenaed the restaurant staff, they've subpoenaed the aides in the political office, both at Mar-a-Lago and in the office downtown, they've subpoenaed some of the lawyers. The problem with doing this in Trump world is everyone talks to each other. And I'm not going down this route of witness intimidation. I'm going down this route of getting accounts messed up. Because if everyone's talking to each other and internally things get lost in translation or people you know, start recounting things differently. Or it's a game of telephone. Right. And then so when they actually go before the grand jury, is there a true to like honest account of what happened? They're not deliberately trying to lie, but have their accounts been muddied because they've been talking to people who have either deliberately or not deliberately changed their mind on some stuff. And I think this is a real problem with Trump world because everyone does talk to each other. And it's evident even from a reporting standpoint, which is why I think this is becoming an issue. You know, last month, we were reporting on a junior aide who photocopied stuff onto her computer. Talking to various lawyers in Trump world and the campaign, depending on who you speak to, there was a thumb drive involved. Or there wasn't a thumb drive involved. And no one actually knows at this point if there was an actual thumb drive involved. And so if the reporters are having this issue where the lawyers and you know campaign folks speak pretty freely to, I can't imagine what a tangled nest it is for DOJ when people are much more afraid and potentially much more reluctant to talk to investigators. Well, look, I mean, this is the one thing that we know universally about this whole thing, right, is the closer you get to Trump's reality distortion field, the more difficult it is to figure out just what the it's hell like is going on. Yeah, right, like exactly. Yeah, you go, you pass through that barrier and suddenly you're sort of, all right, before we let you go, Hugo, where can our viewers and our listeners find you online and where can they find your work? Well, on Twitter, so long as the website remains up at uh, Hugo Lowell and The Guardian, where I try and bring the, the most interesting uh, Trump world news, I think. You know, we don't try and compete with the Times and the Post on every single story, you know, big stories we do. But I think, you know, we can offer a different perspective on, on some of what's going on behind closed doors in Trump world. So at The Guardian as well. Absolutely. Check it out. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, so long as it's legal, at Reed Galen, and on Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Also want to say thank you to the folks over at Vulture for giving us a nice shout out vis-a-vis -vis Succession. Always nice to see us pierce that cultural veil. As always, gang, thanks so much for joining us. Hugo, thanks for joining me today. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. 
I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.